You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Well, good morning. Uh, We're going to continue our study through Genesis today, so we'll be in the tail end of Genesis 1, and we'll spend some time in Genesis 2. I'm sure that we possibly will spend some more time in Genesis 2 next week, uh, as we're not going to cover it in mass detail, but... Uh, this morning we're gonna we're gonna look at um, the question of who are we, or or maybe more personally for you, like who am I? Um, so we've looked these these past several weeks. We've looked at the story of creation, and we spent some time on each particular day, uh, and looked at the importance of those days, the importance of creation as a whole, and the main idea, the main message that we want to get across to you is that the creation account is foundational to what we believe as Christians. And so, thanks Zach for that this morning. If I think about Zach and, and, and Dale and, and what they do, if you think about construction, if you set an angle in construction, or in my line of work, if I'm, if I'm painting a foul line, if I'm setting my angle at the point of home plate, if, if, if the start is off, okay, I can start painting that foul line, and it looks pretty good. But when I get 300 feet or 350 feet down the line to the end of the fence, what started off as a small mistake will be a drastic mistake. And now everybody that comes to that game tonight goes, who painted that line? <laughs> you know. So the point is that the foundation matters. Where you start matters, or else... If, you're, if you start from the wrong position, you're very quickly going to find yourself off course. And we don't want that to happen as believers. And so the creation account, the creation story is so foundational to what we believe. And, and if you hear anything that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. Here's the goal. And this is why Genesis is important. It's why the creation account is important. Because it's not our job, it's not our goal, it's not our motive to make what we read in Genesis fit in with what we believe. That's not the goal. The goal is we have to allow what the creation account teaches to shape and mold what we believe. There's a huge difference between the two. And if you take a look at the culture, that's not very difficult to see. Am I allowing what I read in Scripture to shape what I believe, or am I trying to fit what I read in Scripture to what I already believe? There's a huge difference there. We want Scripture to shape and mold what we believe and know about our God and about creation. So we're going to continue to look at the creation account this morning. Specifically, we're going to look at the creation of humanity, and we're going to look at what Scripture has to say about it. And if you think about that question, who are we? That's a big question. It's a question that many people have. Who am I? What's my role in the world? Where do I fit in? What's my life supposed to look like? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are searching for the answers to those questions and questions that are very similar to those. And I really strongly believe that we can narrow it down into two different camps. Your answer to those questions will fall into one of two camps. The first is, this is who I want to be, and everything else is going to be filtered through that. I'm going to make my decision, this is who I want to be, and everything else is going to be filtered through that. Or, 
you understand this is who I was created to be, and that standard or that expectation will shape everything else I do. You're going to be one of those two types of people. So is it about what I want to be, or is it about what I'm supposed to be? That's what we're going to see in Scripture this morning. And it's imperative that as believers we get that right. So what does the creation account tell us about who we are as humans? That's the question I want to tackle today. And Scripture is going to give us three definitive answers. This is real simple. If you want to come up and take a picture afterwards, there's an outline behind me. You probably can't read it from where you're sitting. But that's for you to go home and study. Three things that we're going to see. The first is, Scripture tells us clearly who, what we are. It tells us what we are. Secondly, it tells us what we're to do. So this is who you are. This is what you're supposed to do. And then lastly, this is what you're supposed to be. So what are we? What are we supposed to do? And what are we called to be? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to start with what are we? Who am I? What does Scripture tell me about that? Well, what we read this morning, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I want to stay on point, but I also want to stand firm and say, non-binary is not an option here. It's not in Genesis. It says, male and female, he created them. It doesn't say male that thought he was a female or female that thought she was a male. It says male and female. So that's, that's extra and that's free. But that's what it says. So we've seen God create. We've seen God create light. We've seen God create morning and day. We've seen him create the waters, dry land, vegetation, sun, moon, stars, fish, birds, all the animals, and God created all of these things, and he deemed that each of these was good. So God's fulfilled his purpose in creation up to this point, and what comes next in this story is the creation of us, the creation of humanity. If we are attempting to determine what we are, who am I, who are you, at our very core, we have to recognize that the creation account, it directly points to humanity being distinctly different. Now, take a look around. There's people that don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. But the truth is, we are created distinctly different. And we're going to see that a handful of different ways. First, just look at God's evaluation of what he did. So God creates each day. And at the completion of each step in this creation process, prior to mankind, notice that God evaluates his work by deeming that it's good. So he creates the day and the night. It's good. He creates the fish. It's good. He creates the animals. It's good. God did good work. And that's understandable because he's God. He always has a purpose and in creation, he's fulfilled that purpose to this point. The standard has been met. This is good. But when we see the creation of humanity, all of a sudden we get a different evaluation. In Genesis 1.31, God assesses what he's done, what he's created, and instead of good, 
Now we see God deem the creation of humanity as very good. So it's not just good, now all of a sudden it's very good. And the language is interesting here because somebody could make the argument that humanity was the final piece of the puzzle and so God finishes all of creation and he deems everything very good. That's a valid point. I think that's a valid argument, but the counter or the pushback to that is simply that the final piece that capped it off. What was it? So if we're good, and now all of a sudden everything's very good, well, what made it very good? What's the missing piece that makes it go from good to very good? It's humanity. It's the creation of humanity. We were the missing piece that transformed creation from good to very good. And it's not because I'm so awesome or because you're so awesome. It's not because of what I did. It's because of what God did. Because of what God created. There's, here's the point. There's something distinct about humanity. And if we, if we grapple with that, then we have to ask another question. And the question is, okay, what makes us distinct? If that's the truth... We're, we're the key piece that transitions creation from good to very good. Well, what makes us distinct? What makes us that unique piece? And the answer is clear. Scripture tells us we're made in the image of God. We're made in His likeness. If that makes us distinct, so we've got to look at Scripture from multiple angles here. And if that's what makes us distinct, then there's an implication here that the remainder of creation is not made in the image of God. We're unique. God didn't take the fish and make him in the image of God. God didn't take the cow and make it in the image of God. God only did that with humanity. We're unique. And that's a critical part of this foundation Critical. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. We're unique. We're distinct because we're made in the image of God. The world wants you to believe that we're the descendants of apes or just the product of evolution. But if we believe that, if we buy into that lie, it negates the fact that we're made in the image of God and that we're distinct. It diminishes who we are and what we were created to be. Now, we could spend... I was going to say we could spend all day on this. We could spend six weeks on this. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, historically, it's been connected to our ability to reason, our sense of right and wrong, our creative characteristics, along with other traits. And I think on some level, that's correct. But even greater, to be made in the image of God points to our role as ambassadors or viceroys of God while we're on earth. I want you to think about this simple point. I really, this, is a, this can be a very complex topic, and I want to try to make this as simple as possible. If you think about it, we're made in the image of God. An image is made to image. It's, what, it's, it's real simple. That's... Maybe that's a confusing statement, but an image is made to image. It's what it's supposed to do. Yes, I'm 41 years old. I absolutely 
love to collect baseball cards. My wife makes fun of me for watching people open packs of baseball cards on YouTube. That's what I like to do. So you can mock me and scoff me, but I really like baseball cards. And if you think about a baseball card, essentially what it is, it's an image. The card represents the player whose image it bears. It displays the characteristics of the player. You flip it over and look at the back of it. You get all the stats. This is what the player's done. This is who he is. This is where he's born. This is where he went to high school. He got drafted in this round. You find out all this information about the player. It communicates to the person holding the image who the player is. And in many ways, that's what it means for us to be made in the image of God. We are his representative. We are called to display his characteristics in the world, to be an extension of who he is. That's what makes us distinct from the rest of creation. God didn't ask the fish to do that. He didn't ask the animals to do that. He put that responsibility on our shoulders. We are called to image him. He has uniquely stamped us to reveal his presence, his characteristics, and everything about him. So what we are, who am I? What I am is an image bearer, an image bearer of the one true God, and that comes with responsibility. That's what I am. Second, what am I supposed to do? So if that's who I am, what am I supposed to do? And we see that in the very next verse. In Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So if I'm an image bearer, or a representative of God, if he has given me authority on this earth, I don't have the privilege of resting on my laurels. I can't just sit on my can and go, I was made in the image of God. We have work to do. There's a responsibility that comes with that. It's an honor to be chosen by the one true creator God to serve in this capacity. But we can't just revel in it. We can't walk around and stick our chest out and beat our chest. Look at me, I'm somebody. We're to meet the obligation that God has given us. So what exactly are we supposed to do? Scripture makes it very clear. This is not a trick. It's not confusing. Scripture makes it very clear. It gives us a fourfold job description. That's what you see in Genesis 1.28. A fourfold job description. The first part is you're called to be fruitful. We're supposed to be fruitful. Now, I don't want to read too much into that passage, but I think this concept moves well beyond childbearing. It's automatically where our mind goes, but I think it moves beyond that. That's asked of us. And I think there's a double emphasis here. But being fruitful is more than simply having children. right? If we're followers of God, if you just track along in the New Testament and the Gospels, we're called to bear fruit. right? Followers of God, we're supposed to bear fruit. That's a requirement of our life. That's an expectation. If you look at the Hebrew word for bearing fruit or being fruitful, that idea... The Hebrew word can convey this idea of flourishing. You heard that word in the video this morning. That's what man was placed in the Garden of Eden to do, to flourish. And God gave mankind all that they would need to flourish. He gave us everything we needed to flourish. All we simply had to do was follow his plan. Now, 
we're going to find out in the coming weeks that things got derailed. It only takes one chapter. You get to Genesis 3, and things go off the train tracks. Sin enters the world, but the plan doesn't change. Man's still called to flourish. That, that extends to me and to you. The plan doesn't change. You're called to flourish. And you may push back on that and say, come on, man. I'm not, I'm not in a garden. I'm not in a garden. Yeah, you're not in a literal garden, but God has uniquely placed you where you are. And he desires that you flourish, that you put forth, put forth your best in all that you do in an Im, in a effort to image him so that others are drawn to him. That's what you're called to be. You're called to be fruitful. You're called to flourish. God has called you to be something and when you pursue that path of what you're intended to be, human flourishing is the natural byproduct. And our culture has gotten that so twisted because I want to flourish my own way. And I think the path that I'm seeking is going to lead me to flourishing when in reality it's the complete opposite. God says, I'm for you. I created you. I want you to flourish. This is how you do it. All you have to do is follow the plan. And if you follow the plan, then flourishing is a natural byproduct. When we seek to be what we want to be, when I place what I want to be as a top priority, things fall off the rails, just as they did in Genesis 3. So here's the point about being fruitful. You're not called to be average. You're called to flourish. You weren't created to be average. You're created to flourish, to be fruitful. It's an expectation. He goes on and he says, and I want you to multiply. So part of the expectation for sure does include childbearing. God has specifically created mankind to multiply, to replicate. And he, in a sense, he's given mankind the earth as an inheritance, and it's our responsibility to fill it. But what's the point of multiplication? The, the point of multiplication is to exponentially create more. That's the point of multiplication. So you think about, think about a Bible track. There's a box right there. You think about a track that's sitting in that box. If I take one of those today before I leave, and I hand it out to somebody to share the gospel, can that be effective? Yeah, for sure. That can be effective. But are there limits to that effectiveness? Yeah, because I've only got one. Can the track be effective? Yes. But there's a limit to how effective it can be because I only have one. Its reach is limited, and therefore its effectiveness is limited. But what if I take ten? What if I take ten tracks with me? What happens to my potential effectiveness? How many more individuals can I reach? Well, I got 10 tracks. That's a simple concept that applies to me and you as well. As image bearers of God, we have the opportunity to produce more image bearers. That's the point. And if we produce more image bearers, we have the opportunity to produce, to, to produce or increase our effectiveness to share the gospel. 
and to, and to point people, direct people to the one true God. Just go back to the baseball cards. We're going back to the cards. So throw up that first picture. So 1990, baseball cards were all the rage. About like they are now, it's getting to be insane. They were printing bukus of them. In 1990, Donruss made a set that was not very pretty. It had this red border all around it. I guess that was a thing, you know, loud colors in the 90s. But there's something interesting about this set of cards. This card of John Smoltz is interesting. Hall of Fame pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Now, if I, if I held you to the carpet and I handed out a piece of paper and I asked you, What's interesting about this card? Okay. A good 50% of this room would have no clue what's so interesting about this card. Maybe 75%. Maybe 90. Here's what's interesting about the card. That ain't John Smoltz. It's not him. Go to the next one. That's John Smoltz. So Donruss prints a card with the wrong guy's picture on it. And so they had to fix it, and so they printed this one. But there's literally probably millions of cards in production. Like, I have both of those cards in my house. They're not worth anything, about a quarter apiece. But they couldn't fix the mistake. They had already pumped out tons of those cards. So you got a card with the wrong guy on it. That's it. I find that interesting, fascinating. But it's, a, it's an error card. It's not John Smoltz. This is John Smoltz. Here's the point. Do, do all human beings bear the image of God? Yes, the answer is yes. All of humanity bears the image of God. But are all humans good image bearers? No. Just like this card. It's not John Smoltz. That's, that's, a, bad, that's a bad image. It is, it is not reflecting who John Smoltz really is. FYI, that was Tom Glavin. He played for the Braves, too. But it's not John Smoltz. Both pitched for the Braves. I guess they got, you know when you go to school pictures and they give you the tag and you, they got their tags mixed up, I guess. So, but when we think about multiply, like we're, we're an image bearer of God. We're called to be a good image bearer. That ups the ante, so to speak, on multiplying God calls you to multiply. We should desire to make more quality image bearers. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. And here's what you should do with them. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them on a sign on your hand that shall be as frontless to your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Teach them everywhere you go. Why? So you produce good image bearers of me. We're called to multiply. But that, if we think about that, it, it moves beyond childbearing. We're to teach our children so that they can be true image bearers of God. Walk outside. Any guy, any girl can have a kid. But we're to produce good image bearers of God so that God will be represented to a lost world. 
Now, a few more things to tackle here. Maybe you've got these questions. What about people that can't have children? Or what about people that choose to remain sing- single? So is this call to multiply a command that's being broken? If I don't have a kid, whether I can or can't, if I don't, am I breaking this command? It's a good question. I think it's a general command that we're given with exceptions. Because I think certainly those that are infertile, they're not required to have children. They can't. And if you look at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he mentions that there are those who are called to be single. So that's a reality. Paul even calls that a blessing. But in both instances, that doesn't mean that the infertile person or the infertile couple or the person who's called to be single, that doesn't mean that they cannot multiply spiritually. We're all called to multiply spiritually. God desires multiplication that draws others to himself. That's the point. Does that include children? Yes. Does it move beyond children? Yes. We're called to multiply. Next, God tells us that we're to fill the earth. So beyond the expectation to be fruitful and multiply, humanity is also called upon to fill the earth. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden And yet they and their descendants were expected to extend the garden and to grow it. I don't want to spend too much time here, but you know, just based on human nature, that we can be very territorial, right? We have the tendency to avoid change and we want to stay put. In other words, we want to be comfortable. That's not what God's called us to do. And if you look at scripture, when people tend to congregate together, bad things tend to happen. Just look at the Tower of Babel. People intentionally rebelled against the expectation to fill the earth, which led to rampant sin and ultimately led to God's discipline. So what about me? What about you? What about us? Am I supposed to move? It's funny, isn't it? I believe, here's what I believe. If you feel led to move and minister at another location, then yeah, move. But that's not the case for everyone. But... Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you've been hesitant to participate in missions abroad. Why? Because you don't want to be uncomfortable? Maybe you've networked and ministered with people in, quote-unquote, your group, and you've neglected getting uncomfortable. Why? God has called you to fill the earth. And when I think about that, I think about the passage in Habakkuk 2.14, It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. You ever seen a sea that wasn't covered by water? It means God's glory is going to be everywhere. God's glory ultimately will cover the whole earth. That's the plan of God. And he's called you to play a role in that, to fill the earth with the knowledge of him. The question is, how are you taking part in that? doesn't have to mean you pick up everything and move to Africa. But how am I playing a role in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth just like the waters cover the sea? I'm called to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. And lastly, humanity is called to subdue the earth and take dominion over it. Again, the earth's our inheritance from the Lord and we're to claim it. Dominion means rule or power over. That that implies that we're an extension of God's authority on earth. 
we're, we've been placed in a position of command. That brings me back to that idea that mankind is the pinnacle of creation. It's not, it's not a popular thought in today's culture. Just take this example. And the eagle, the, the, an egg of a bald eagle is far more protected than an unborn child. So if that's the truth, what's the pecking order? What, where does that imply that value is? You, that's just one example. You see it all over the culture today. Decisions that are made that equate humanity with the rest of creation or place humanity below the rest of creation. And the truth is that that line of thinking, it directly contradicts what the creation story teaches. So let's go back to foundation. Mankind was given a position of command over the earth and the rest of creation upon it. That comes with responsibility. The expectation is that we're going to be good stewards of it. We certainly are not to mistreat God's creation, but I want you to hear me. We're not to put ourselves under its authority because that's an authority that simply doesn't exist. It's an authority that we've created. I was given, you were given, the position of command over the earth. It was not given the position to rule over me. There's also this, this idea of mastery here. If, if I'm going to exercise dominion, that requires mastery. I can't exercise dominion over something that I don't have mastery of. Again, we're not in the garden. You're not in the garden. But God's placed you in your own garden. So the question is, are you exhibiting mastery over it? There's a good chance that if for some reason you choose not to eat in here today, which would be a mistake, but if you leave here and you go to get some food, there's a good chance that A, you're going to wait a long time to get it. B, you're going to have to go through the drive-thru because you can't get inside because we don't have enough people to work. Or C, the place might be closed because there are not people working. I sat at a Sonic the other day for 40 minutes because I'd already paid. <laughs> and there's like two people working there. Okay, so if you look at, and we could really chase a rabbit trail here, but if you look at America, think about the American goal. It, it seems to be that over the past year, the goal has shifted to not working. All of a sudden, that's the goal. And that's counter to what God has called us to do. We're to work. We're not just to work. We're to work well. We're to take dominion. I'm to demonstrate mastery. What has God given me? What are the skills, talents, abilities that he's given me? Where has he placed me to work so I can bring glory to his name? And I'm not just supposed to work and check a box. I'm supposed to work well. That's taking dominion. That's what God's called us to do. That leads us to the third point, which is what are we supposed to be? Genesis chapter 2. Let's read the whole chapter. It says, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he'd done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. 
These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust. I want you to pay attention to the language here. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from the land is pure. Bedlam and Onyx were also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The third of the river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat it you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought to each man to which he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and the wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So we get a little different twist on the creation story. Genesis 1 teaches us what we are and what we're to do. And as we move into chapter 2, we get this different angle that presents to humanity what you're supposed to be. So this is who you are. And now, what are you supposed to be? The first thing that we see, we see three things here. And the first is, in Genesis 2, that humanity is designed to be in relationship with God. Designed to be in relationship with God. One of the ways that we see this is if you look at the name given to God in this chapter. So Moses, who's writing Genesis, chooses to use the title Yahweh Elohim. We see that same use 20 times in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. That's more, these 20 times is, is more than you see that same title used throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So Moses is trying to make a point here. So what's this title and what does it mean? Well, when we split it into two parts, Yahweh, it's God's personal name. It's the name that God used when he presented himself to Moses at the burning bush. It means I am or I be. The point is that God's self-existent, he's self-sustaining. I am who I am. I don't need anything else for me to exist. I've always existed, I always will exist. I am. He's the absolute of all beings. He's consistent, he's personal, and he's ever-present. Okay, that's Yahweh. Elohim is a description of an infinitely power and great God. Infinitely powerful and great. 
it depicts the creator who created the heavens and the earth. So you've got Yahweh, you've got Elohim. So Moses takes these two, Yahweh, Elohim, and he's creating a connection between the personal God who rescued and saved Israel with Yahweh, the very same God who created all things, Elohim. So you've got Yahweh, the personal God, Elohim, the creator God, and Moses is saying, hey, same God. It's the same God. He's personal, and yet he's all-powerful. It's the same God who brought you your salvation. You're called to have a relationship with him. And that idea of a personal God, it's only magnified as you read through chapter 2. Genesis 2-7, it shows a personal care in the creation of man that you simply do not see in the creation of anything else. God speaks, it's created. And you get to the creation of man, and now it's this picture like a potter forming clay. There's intimate care going into the creation of something. Mankind wasn't simply thrown together. There's no chaos like the world wants to teach you. His creation was intentional and it was thoughtful to the very point that God breathed his own life into mankind. Could it get any more personal? He formed you, he made you, he breathed his life into you. The same was true for Adam, the same is true for you. God's shown great care in the creation of you and me. We're created to be in relationship with him. The question of who am I will never be answered without that relationship. As one drifts away from God, they drift away from their true identity. That's why so many people are confused, man. That's why so many people are lost. Because as you drift away from God, you drift away from your true identity, who you were made to be. The second thing you see is that point of workers. We're called to be productive workers. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it. Notice the timeline. God creates man and he puts him to work. Sin doesn't enter the world until Genesis 3. The misconception is that work is a result of sin. But that's not the truth. The curse, as a result of sin, made the work harder. But man was created to work. And again, not only to work, but to work well. Colossians 3.23, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Why? Because that's what you were created to do. Work and work well. This is not going to be a popular statement. <laughs> Retirement is not a biblical concept. It's just not. Now, does that mean I have to work my job for 65 years? No. But I don't get to stop working at my job one day and go home and sit on the couch for the rest of my life. God has called you to work, and he's called you to work well. We're to be fruitful and productive workers until the day we die, striving to build the kingdom of God. Change your perception of, of what you do. God didn't create me. Do I believe that God cre created me to be a baseball coach? Absolutely. Because I know when I go to work every day and work long hours, it doesn't feel like work ever, except maybe those few conversations you have with crazy parents outside of that it doesn't feel like work if people looked at my if people looked at my schedule 
and if I kept a log sheet of hours and you looked at my schedule and then you compared it to what I actually get paid, just what I get paid to coach, people laugh me out of the room. Well, you're crazy. Why would you do that? Because it's what I was made to do. But God didn't, didn't make me to do that per se. He made me to place me in that environment to do what he's called me to do. Same things holds true for you. I'm not working at the factory to do the factory job. I'm working at the factory to reach the people around me that work at the factory. That's why I'm there. I don't build houses just to build houses. I build houses to have an impact on my crew that's around me that's helping me build the house. That's why God's placed you there. You're called to be a worker, a good worker, for the rest of your life. In the absence of work is an absence of true identity. It's an absence of what God's called you to be. Because you're called to be a worker. The last thing is that we're created to be morally responsible to God. That's clearly seen in Genesis 2.9 and Genesis 2.16 and 17. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we got these trees. They're there. Then we read that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, all these trees you can eat from, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you can't eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here's the rules. These verses teach us a few important things. God alone knows what's good and bad for mankind. Period, end of story. God alone knows what's good and bad for mankind. God has built certain principles into his creation, and when we violate these principles, things don't go well for us. It's a pretty simple equation. I like math. It's a pretty simple equation. Here's the principles. If you want to step outside these boundaries, it's not good. And far too often, we want to create our own rules. And then things don't go well, and we're standing there scratching our head complaining. Why didn't it go well? Because here's the standard. Follow the standard. Speaking of the standard, or the expectation, the presence of this standard or expectation from God, right? You can eat from all these trees, except for this one. The presence of that standard is a reminder that you're not your own God. I'm God. You're not your own God. Again, these concepts, right? Let me read them again. God alone knows what's good and bad for mankind. God's got certain principles in creation. When you violate those principles, things go bad. And the presence of expectation from God serves as a reminder that I'm not my own God. Those concepts, don't overcomplicate them. They're pretty simple. And they can ultimately all be reduced down to the simple fact that God's goal for humanity is flourishing. He wants you to win. He wants you to win. He desires what's best for you, and He alone knows what's best for you. Therefore, He's established the expectation, what we are to be, because not only will that lead to flourishing, but it's also going to lead to His glory. That's the deal. The problem comes in when we begin to doubt, and now I want to serve as my own functional God. 
You've heard me say it before. Like That's ultimately the source of all sin, pride. Pride is the source of all sin. I could take the whiteboard. I could hand you the marker with one rule. Come up here and write a sin on the board. You've got to write a different one than the last guy wrote. No duplicates. So we'd have dang near 100 sins written up on the board, and they all would be rooted in pride. All of them. The idea that I know better than God, or I can meet my needs better than God, just means I can be a better God than you, God. That's the deal. That's all sin. We're not called to be our own God. We're not created to be our own God. We're created to be morally responsible to the one true creator God. That's what we're created to be. So if you look at all of this through a New Testament lens, it's, it's very easy, crystal clear, to see that our true identity can only be found in Christ. He's the creator. And each of us has been created by him with a purpose. He's created us to know what we are, what we need to do, and what we're to be. He's placed it right before us. Maybe you're in here this morning. Maybe you've struggled with identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? The question of what you're meant to be. The answer to that question can and will only be found in a relationship with Christ. Outside of that, you're going to continue to experience this feeling of letdown or confusion, frustration. As a church, we don't want you to experience that. I want you to feel that way. We want you to flourish through a relationship with Christ. Now, the truth is, that may, may, not, may not make a whole lot of sense. That's okay. It doesn't have to make a lot of sense at the moment. All you need to do is commit to seeking your relationship with Him. I want to know. If that's where you're at this morning, if you ever prayed the simple prayer of, I want to know. If you're real, prove to me you're real. I want to experience you. I want to know you. If that's where my identity is supposed to be found, reveal it to me. Pray that prayer. That's a bold prayer. But pray it. It's also possible that maybe you're a follower of Christ in here who's struggling with the very same thing. I can't make sense of things. It doesn't make sense. That's easy to do when we lose sight of what we've been created to be. So as a coach, maybe it's time to get back to fundamentals. To recognize what you are as an image bearer. What you're to do as that image bearer. And what has God called you to be on that journey. Hopefully today, this will give you a better sense of purpose as as a Christian. And it'll draw you back to your relationship with Christ. It's no random chance who you were created to be. It's been meticulously and intentionally purposed by the one true creator God. So that you would have every possible opportunity to flourish in this life and beyond as well as promote the glory of god in all that you do that's what life's all about god wants you to flourish he wants you to draw other people to him because ultimately his glory will cover this whole stinking planet and he's called you to be a part of it so the question you have to answer this morning is what am i doing to participate do i recognize who i am what i am and what I'm called to be. Because it doesn't have to be a complicated question. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for this study in Genesis. Just the 
Lord, I pray that our foundation would be strong as a body of believers, that we would recognize the instruction that you've given us, and that we would cling to it despite what the world throws our way. We don't want to fall off course. We don't want to become distracted. We don't want to waver. We want everything that we do, everything that we are, to be filtered through the Word of God. We want that to shape us instead of what we want shaping it. Lord, I pray for this place that that you would continue to use it in mighty ways, and I pray that you would bless our meal today and our time of fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Yeah, just a reminder, the carpet is being cleaned, so if we can move the back half. Yeah, if we can leave about three rows in the front and move the, the rest of the chairs, if you get a chance to help us move those to the back, yes? To the back, so they can clean the carpet, and then we will have service tonight uh, at 6 o'clock. Thank you. Yeah.